Is it possible to blame countries other than Russia for moving soldiers into Ukraine nearly a year ago? Does Ukraine truly qualify as a democratic country? Are countries throughout Africa and Europe rejecting President Biden's call for sanctions targeting Russia? Will the war in Ukraine end in defeat by one side or the other, or both, in a shower of radioactive dust. This week on the Global Research News Hour, our discussion focuses on the ongoing war in Ukraine, examining details of what set off the invasion nearly a year ago, the attitudes of various nations, and what is likely to be the outcome of this war between neighboring countries on an escalating course toward nuclear Armageddon. My guest for most of the show is geopolitical analyst Madi Nazamroya. In addition, we will introduce you to the station's Fun Drive event starting as this show goes to air. On this week's program, investigating the war in Ukraine and its aftermath, a conversation with Madi Nazamroya. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of February 10th, 2023. The program is funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. I'm your host, Michael Welch. The show seeks to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our shows are features on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. We acknowledge that this broadcast was produced on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Oji Cree, Diné, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. Settlers utilized the papal doctrine known as the Doctrine of Discovery, to undermine rights to lands and waters of people abroad, both among people indigenous to this land and to those in lands abroad, such as Africa and Latin America. And we are committed to a process of reversing this trend. We are next going to share this week's news notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Listeners should know that some of the articles may run against common messaging about sensitive subjects and are not all endorsed by this radio station. He is a professor who, like the character David in John Fowles' story, The Ebony Tower, teaches art history. And like Fowles' character, he is a very frustrated academic. In Sean's case, he has had to contend with the transformation of his college from a place of learning to a place where woke ideology stifles dissent. Perhaps, more importantly, he has suffered from extreme writer's block. He had just been telling me how, after years of writing copiously in his private journals, he had grown nauseated by it because it seemed so self-involved concerning self and family stuff he was sick of. That comes from the article, Prediction of a Disenchanted World. Inside the Iron Cage by Edward Curtin, posted February 8th, originally published on the author's blog site 
behind the curtain. The article goes on to provide an update of many advances and concerns in the practice of inserting microchips into humans, and this blog is referenced several times. Indeed, I have written about microchip implants from a cybersecurity and privacy perspective three times before, and it is clear to me that inquiring minds still want to know, what is the future of microchip implants? Why do I say that with confidence? Because blogs on this topic of microchip implants still receive very high page views and lots of interest from global readers. That comes from the article, From Progress to Bans, How Close Are Human Microchip Implants? By Daniel J. Lorman, posted February 8th, originally published on Government Technology. Despite the fact that many workers viewed Macron as a lesser threat to the gains made by the French unions, one of the first pieces of legislation introduced in the second administration of the incumbent has been the attack on pensions. The plan is to raise the retirement age from 62 to 64 while imposing higher contributions from the workers themselves by mandating that people be employed for 43 years to collect full pension benefits. A broad coalition of French workers and youth have answered Macron's policies with a series of general strikes and mass mobilizations. On February 11th, another day of demonstrations will be held aimed at filling the streets of Paris and other major cities throughout the country. Transportation systems are being halted Employees in the oil and energy industries have impeded fuel deliveries and access to electric power. Schools are being closed as teachers and students join other workers to oppose the Macron agenda. That comes from the article, French Union Stage Third Day of General Strikes Against Pension Reform by Abeyomi Azikiwe, posted February 8th. Following the January 20th meeting of the Ramstein Contact Group and subsequent follow-on discussions about the provision of tanks, NATO and its allied partners have agreed to provide less than 50% of the number of tanks requested, less than 50% of the number of infantry fighting vehicles requested, and less than 20% of the artillery requested. Moreover, the timetable for delivery of this equipment is staggered incoherently, over a period that stretches out for many months and in some cases extends into the next year. Not only does this complicate training and logistical sustainability issues that are already unfavorably inclined for Ukraine, but it makes any meaningful effort to integrate this material into a cohesive operational employment plan all but impossible. In short, Ukraine will be compelled to commit the equipment provided, especially the tanks, into combat in piecemeal fashion. The truth about tanks is that NATO and its allied nations are making Ukraine weaker, not stronger, by providing them with military systems that are overly complicated to operate, extraordinarily difficult to maintain, and impossible to survive unless employed in a cogent manner 
while supported by extensive combined arms partners. That comes from the article, Truth About Tanks, How NATO Lied Its Way to Disaster in Ukraine, Scott Ritter. By Scott Ritter, posted February 8th, originally published on the UNS Review. Balloons are not an ideal platform for spying, writes James Andrew Lewis. They are big and hard to hide. They go where the winds take them. Such instruments, quote, would be a strange choice for a technologically advanced and sophisticated opponent, unquote. This absurd spectacle has become the stuff of political bricks and straw for a Biden administration keen to push its stuttering election cart. That comes from the article, Ballooning Paranoia, The China Threat Hits the Skies, by Dr. Binoy Campmark, posted February 8th. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. Putin's invasion has been a test for the ages, a test for America, a test for the world. Would we stand for the most basic of principles? Would we stand for sovereignty? Would we stand for the right of people to live free of tyranny? Would we stand for the defense of democracy? For such defense matters to us because it keeps peace and prevents open season on would-be aggressors and threatens our prosperity. One year later, we know the answer. Yes, we would, and we did. We did. And together, we did what America always does at our best. We led. We united NATO. We built a global coalition. We stood against Putin's aggression. We stood with the Ukrainian people. That was an excerpt from the 2023 State of the Union speech in which President Joe Biden made it clear how Americans, Europeans, Ukrainians, and the civilized world stood united in their determination to foil the sinister plans of Vladimir Putin of Russia from taking over Ukraine, the maneuver that began nearly one year ago. The U.S. and NATO has since been arming Ukrainians with heavy arms including Javelin anti-tank missiles and Stinger anti-aircraft missiles. Tens of thousands of people are estimated to have died on both sides, and nearly 8 million people have fled the country. Now, with promises of tanks and aircraft training lessons going to President Zelensky's forces, while troops by the hundreds of thousands are preparing to zero in on the battlefield terrain. It looks like a rash of slaughtered people will dominate the history pages as this history book is being written. Behind the blood and guts of war, however, lie leaders with significant geopolitical interests. Much of what is playing out does not come to the attention of the general population. Ideas suggesting that this conflict 
is about more than one war-happy boogeyman waging war on Ukraine out of nostalgia for the days of the former Soviet Union. We will try to examine some of these interests in this edition of the Global Research News Hour. Our guest is Mahdi Darius Nazamroya. He's an award-winning author and geopolitical analyst and wrote The Globalization of NATO. He's a sociologist and research associate at the Center for Research on Globalization, a contributor at the Strategic Culture Foundation in Moscow, and a member of the Scientific Committee of Geopolitica in Italy. We had him appear a couple of weeks ago talking about China and its apparently superior treatment of COVID-19. The following conversation is now focused more on the Ukraine war, surely a major event on the world stage. I led into the conversation with a reference to a past article written by him back in 2015. Let's talk about Ukraine. I mean, you once wrote the essay, The Road to Moscow Goes Through Kiev, which talked about the, the coup in, in which the Ukrainian opposition was used by U.S. and EU to target Ukrainians, uh, targeting um, a, a Crimean bridge, and, and, and Russian, the Russians struck, struck back as a, as a shock and awe move. Uh, Russia is talking about boosting their forces with reserves. The U.S. NATO are, are still putting billions of dollars in Ukraine and in weaponry, uh, patriots and so on. Uh, sanctions are leveled at Russia, but Russia also happened to control major uh, oil and gas reserves. Uh, so, so, so could I get your take on, on the conflict? Will it draw out month, months more? Will Russia uh, suffer yeah. more than the EU? How can you see the situation changing in weeks ahead? Well, let me point out uh, some things I wrote in the past. You brought up uh, that that uh, article I wrote. Sure, the road uh, to Mo- Moscow goes through Kiev. That, uh, but I also wrote many other things about natural gas, for example. A lot of that's come to fruition. Like you, I, 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 ironically, it was published in the Russian press, what I wrote about the natural gas uh, about 10 years ago, maybe a decade ago, saying how the, Euro- the Russians uh, the United States aims to divorce Russia and the European Union from one another and to just fill in the gap for natural gas, you know, to, to supply their energy and, and to be, and that's actually start that's happened. It's, it's divorced them and it's trying to do the same thing in East Asia between China and its neighbors. And at that time, the U S was trying to arrange free trade agreements in both Asia and, and Europe with itself and, and, Asia-Pacific countries and European countries um, under the Obama administration. Now, two administrations later, uh, uh, we see those things come into fruition. Uh, uh, I'd like to point out, I also published a a chapter which got very high praise um, from the the international Russian-American uh, studies uh, uh, association. So that chapter um, talks about the war in Ukraine, what's going to result from it. And uh, I mean, it, it's it's written in a book that has people like Edward Herman from the University of Pennsylvania, who co-authored the book Manufacturing Consent with uh, MIT's professor uh, 
Chomsky, Noam Chomsky, or James Petrus contributed to it, professor from University of Birmingham, um, sociologist as well, uh, John McMurdy from the Royal Society of Canada and the University of Guelph in Ontario, uh, Michael Brante, uh, sociologist, Cornell University. Um, all these people contributed to it. But the chapter I was commissioned to offer uh, for, the, for the book, Flashpoints in Ukraine, uh, uh, you know, it dealt with the constitutionality, the constitution, the historical context, context the documentation uh, um, issues, and, and the geopolitical scope, scope in 2014, where it was headed. You know, the book's name is Flash Forward, Flash Points Ukraine, like, you know, at the crossroads of World War Three, I, uh, I believe. And I, it's been republished in Russian a few years later. This is now almost 10 years ago. Uh, uh, but I, my chapter specifically got noticed by, by the, uh, the, um, the uh, Russian-American International Studies Association. It got high praise as being like a very valuable chapter. I don't want to blow my, toot my horn. The reason I'm mentioning that is just to give some context about my understanding about Ukraine. And as you know, because uh, I, I remember you, you were there, uh, I, I, I lectured at, uh, in Manitoba. Uh, at, it was the University of Manitoba uh, about Ukraine. And, uh, and I also lectured uh, elsewhere in, in, about that. And you, you were present too. So, uh, and, and you also saw the reactions of some, some Ukrainians there that were, they were, uh, they weren't happy. Some U Ukrainians and Ukrainian Canadians, they weren't happy. And the re reactions were actually uh, pretty violent. Uh, it's, they didn't want to discuss anything, you know. Uh, in, instead, they, they wanted to, you, you know, what I say is right was their perspective. You know, what, instead of discussing things, you know, in a forum for discussion and allowed to have free dispute, they, they, they pushed for this perspective of it took them a while. It took the organizers a while to, to main to, to return to order, right? And uh, yeah, I mean there was a, a small turnout, but uh, yeah, it, it really uh, upset the whole proceedings. It took a while to to, to reassemble. Yeah, and that that was intentional. I mean, I, I think disrupting the program, but but uh, you know that that was done. facts from the ground. Uh, the, the issue in Ukraine is blown out of proportion. Now, this, I have to say, is a sensitive topic for people who are linked to Ukraine. I mean, anybody that comes from a country that's, uh, that's, that's poor this, and has relatives and, you know, suffers, I, my heart goes out for them. I, I, I don't think war is the right answer. You know, I, I, this, this, this was uh, definitely uh, an invasion of Ukraine, but we cannot just simply blame Russia. That is correct. Not simply just blame Russia. Uh, uh, and, and that's it. This is black and white. Russia is at fault uh, and Ukraine's the victim. No, it's, it's more complicated. We had outside parties pushing for a war between those two countries. The Russian perspective uh, at the highest levels, was there's going to be a war regardless of what we do. We might as well do it now while we're capable of 
uh, of doing something, whereas in the future we're not. But they're afraid that the Ukrainians will build nuclear weapons. Those statements have been made. They're very clear in the public record that they, they were seeking support and talking about it. I mean, now Angela Merkel, the former Bundes Chancellor, uh, Federal Chancellor of Germany, uh, in English we call her Angela Merkel, uh, uh, Monsieur Francois Hollande, the uh, the former president of France, both confirmed that the Minsk Accords with Russia were just to lay, lay while the military Ukraine. So I want to point something out. Ukraine is not like a sheep. It actually has one of the strongest militaries before the war started. It was already heavily armed. It was already heavily being trained. It had, I think, the, the largest army in Europe, or one of the largest armies already, after the Russian army. Uh, so it was being heavily weaponized already. And and in their documents, they're talking about starting the war with Russia as part of their national objectives, not, ju- not just because of Kiev. So there was already a war was going to come. And they believed that the war would be an important catalyst for setting up uh, a new Ukraine and new uh, geopolitical realities, which is unfortunate. Um, they, they, they ha- I have to remind everybody about the characteristics of modern Ukraine. Modern Ukraine uh, as a state is just that. It's a modern state. It's the construction of, of uh, the Soviet Union as a state boundaries and everything you know but of course this does not uh this does not negate the historical reality of a ukraine there's always been a ukraine you know? uh, let me put it this way let's say ottawa becomes a separate country from canada right nobody as a country yes it's a new country but ottawa's very old you know is it, it's, it's it was started as Bytown. So, yeah, we have that history. We can always say, yeah, Ottawa's old. What are you talking about? We're not really a new country. Ottawa's been around. It's the same with Ukraine. It's, it's, it's very old. Had a brief period as a country uh, after World War I. The Germans, uh, the Bolsheviks, which are the minority, uh, sorry, the, the majority uh, of the Communist Party, all Russia Communist Party, uh, they they, um, they agreed that Belarus and Ukraine could become its temporary. It eventually became a Soviet uh, republic, and, and its boundaries were greatly expanded without any consent from many people. If you look at any maps of the Soviet Union, also you'll notice that Crimea, for a long part, long time, was part of the part of the uh, Russian, uh, uh, the Russian Soviet Federative Republic in the Soviet Union. There was 15 republics, and that was one of them, and it was a part of that. And and the boundary change was Nikita Khrushchev just gave Ukraine to, um, uh, sorry, Crimea to Ukraine. This this was just an administrative change. In fact, for a long time, even the, the bills and, and the resources and, and, and 
material going into Crimea, even after independence of Ukraine, were being taken care of by Russia. And uh, uh, there was even before the independence, uh, the breakup of the Soviet Union, there was, there was, there was, they they were considering handing Crimea back over to the Russians. And Crimea itself is an autonomous republic within Ukraine that has a separate president and a separate Rada or or Duma, a separate parliament, you know, which many times voted against what legislators in 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 uh, in Kiev were voting. So these are these are things that I'm not trying to justify any war against Ukraine in those terms. I'm just saying that there's complexities. It's not black and white. And definitely uh, what we hear in Western media is largely propaganda. It's actually more crude than Cold War propaganda. There hasn't been such a lionization and positive spin on, on militants in war since the, uh, since the insurgency in Syria. You know, so, so, I mean, there is, there, this is clearly geopolitical. I mean, weapons are being sent to Ukraine every single day from all these countries. And then we hear about Iranian drones being sent to Russia. I mean, if these countries like the United States are sending weapons to Ukraine and Germany and Britain, why can't Iranians send weapons to Russia? They, they, of um, course, they deny. They, you, you know, there's this this double standards here. I mean, they, they, uh, you, you understand what I'm trying to point out? Like, so there there's a lot of a lot of the, the water's been very muddy about what's happening in Ukraine. And I, I want to point out that what's happened in Ukraine, people should know that all the political opposition have been outlawed and and arrested. Uh, Zelensky, president of Ukraine, he he's arrested. Uh, the leader, he's arrested any media that disagrees with him or closed it down. He's arrested all the opposition, the head of the largest opposition party. Uh, they, they've denounced them enemy, as enemies of the state, stripped citizenships. They've attacked the Ukrainian Orthodox Church uh, because the Ukrainian Orthodox Church um it's uh, it's linked to the Russian Orthodox Church. It's a part of the Russian Orthodox Church. Until recently, it was always called uh, the Ukrainian branch of the Russian Orthodox Church. You know, they, and and they you know they've arrested priests. They've taken monasteries. They've actually uh, they've actually targeted the largest religious country political reasons. So these type of things are happening. And another point about Ukraine, a lot of the aid is being stolen. Uh, or a lot of the military aid is, is coming in the form of money, which is going in the pockets of the military industrial complex. A lot, Ukraine uh, is, has had, and you can, anybody, don't take my word for it. This does not say anything bad about the Ukrainian people. I respect the Ukrainian people. I think they are uh, beautiful, great, strong people. And their strength is in their culture, history, and you know, their customs, and uh, the many unique aspects of it. But uh, same thing with the Russian people. I respect them. They're great people too. You have to respect their culture their, and their, 
and the contribution of both these nations to world civilization from music, uh, literature, and path history. But anyways, Ukraine, now that said, Ukraine was known, is known, and any objective scholar, any objective organization will tell you as one of the most corrupt states in the world, the world, and the most in Europe. No state, even those who accuse Russia of corruption, they are fair, they will definitely tell you the most corruption is in Ukraine. So a lot of money was being taken away, and even the military aid is going back. Like European military aid money, for example, goes to U.S. arms manufacturers. They're just pushing all their money to Ukraine, and at the same time, making the Russians bleed. That's what they're doing: is making the Russians bleed. And it's unfortunate because this war will definitely is definitely changing the mentality of many Russian Ukrainians who who just a few decades ago when the Soviet Union broke up saw the Russians as their own people. There was an expression, one people in two different states. You know, Ukrainian and Russian, both Ukrainians and Russians can understand each other. The languages are so close. And there's many parts of Ukraine where yeah. they don't know if it's Ukrainian or Russian. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. You're the, the author of uh, The Globalization of NATO, and uh, I really wanted to bring up the, the topic of, uh, uh, of Mali and, and the, basically all of the, uh, the, the countries along the Sahel Belt, because uh, France pulled out uh, last year, and uh, but 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 France's military intervention into Mali came alongside its its construction of a military project across the Sahel Belt, you know, which included Burkina Faso, Chad, Mali, Mauritania, uh, uh, Niger, and uh, the military in each of these countries received aid, and its officers received training, and, and it's no surprise. Uh, uh, but uh, that these the, the, the coup is also seems to be related to the uh, the insistence on uh, maintaining the IMF austerity measure um, model. So I, I wonder if you could maybe comment uh, a little bit on um, you know what the, the French mo- mobilization in Africa and and and, and the United States as well and, and how they are interfering you know. To whatever extent the African people are kind of, you know, celebrating the withdrawal of, of the of French forces, I mean, right. what, 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 who's really in control? So, uh, so what you mentioned about the Sahel in coast, West Africa, these countries, Guinea Coast is not on the coast, of course, but it's it's still in the area where Guinea Coast is, Ghana, Ivory Coast, uh, Equatorial. Mali is is further up north. That area, Sahel region. Uh, I want to emphasize and make this point, and this title, the headline for this point, mental note. This point is this this push of France is uh, is symbolic of the decline of the West. West is in decline. There's no question. 
the economies were in decline and now they're in decline. The head of the European Union's Foreign Policy Commission, uh, who's also vice president, uh, the vice president, he said that the European Union is a garden rest of the jungle. And they're not like us. And he's right. The rest of the world's not like the European Union or the West. And now they're saying it and showing it, whereas before they were not as much. The non-Western world, which is the majority of the world, the majority of the international community, are uh, becoming more assertive in many ways. Now, yes, there could be rivalries between capitalist blocks involved. But the point is that the West is declined, fortunately. And I say unfortunately because uh, uh, in the sense of the people in the West, people in the UK, you know, are, are for example, there's people starting fires in their homes, eating bread every night. They only eat bread, toast bread. Many families are riding the bus just to keep warm or going to McDonald's. One out of four Europeans can't pay their bills. One out of four people in the European shoplift is all time high. So poverty's gone up. So that's what I mean by unfortunately the West is in. So I, I care about the people. And, and and someone from the West, someone who is a product of the West, they concept of the West, uh, it's unfortunate to see uh, uh, that happen. But the point here is, and I'll go back to Africa, the bigger point is that this is, you are now seeing a rejection of Western diktats. Now seeing a rejection, for good or for bad, I mean, these countries that, that could be rejecting it doesn't mean that they're the good guys here at all, or heroes. I don't want to, no, nobody should look at it that way. Now you can see this rejection. It will become stronger and hurt more. Uh, in the future, which Western Bloc, uh, you know, and it's very clear in Africa where you know they're 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 calling for Russian support for China. Uh, um, you know, it's it's not just in Mali; it's in Central African uh, Republic where the, the, there's Russian involvement. That uh, uh, this decline is taking place. The Africans are even; they are starting to become very vocal like south africa's uh, uh foreign minister just said the u.s not like you know the u.s's legislature about stopping russia and africa is illegal we don't want it you know, they also threaten africa over our relations with russia you know russia is not isolated whatsoever uh you know it's not the pariah that they want us to think it's 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 trade has gone up it's selling more resources than before Exports are higher. Most of Africa I mean, is uh, is not uh, really respecting the other the, the this decision to condemn the uh, Russia over Ukraine with, uh, at all. They're not with it. Like everybody in Europe is not also with it. I just want to point out, you know, the European Union and some other European countries are, but countries like Serbia, which has been under heavy pressure, and 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 you know, Kosovo is being used as a as a pressure tactic against them you know serbia's refused bosnia is not in one of the pro- one of the co-presidents of 
Bosnia refuses. Even the president of Croatia has said this is a proxy war, you know, NATO state and EU state. Uh, other countries that in Europe, like Turkey, is definitely not with this. Turkey's refused to go along with sanctions. Moldova is not, I mean, Moldova's president is something, but they have not fully gone the full way. Of course, the government in Moldova, which is a very corrupt, horrible government and fuels Russophobia uh, uh, to get money from the West and is led by somebody who's who used to work for these organizations like the Bank IMF. Uh, they're trying to go along with it, but they're not fully in the sanctions boat. Uh, Belarus, of course, isn't. And it's also a victim of, uh, it's also a target of the sanctions as well. Um, so not everybody in Europe and Asia, most countries are not with the sanctions. Even the Gulf Arabs in the Khalij or, or uh, the Gulf, specifically Persian Gulf, uh, if, I, if uh, to be correct, um, these countries have not gone along with sanctions. You know, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, you know, the, um, even the U.S. accused Saudi Arabia of working with the Russians when it refused to increase oil output for OPEC+. Plus. They wanted to do that to alleviate some issues, but also to make Russia have less revenues. You know, none of the BRICS countries are with it. India and Pakistan have refused. Imran Khan, when he was the president, prime minister of Pakistan, he said that they they don't respect Pakistanis. They don't respect our sovereign decision. We don't want to be. We're not part of this. We're not going to pick sides. You guys want even Georgia, Georgia, who which fought a war at the behest of at the instigation of the Bush Jr. administration or the Bush two administration against Russia over. And then also Abakhazia, uh, these these they refused to be part of the sanctions. They said we, we put our neck out once before. We saw what the West did. They, they used us, so we're not doing it again. And Ukraine got upset, and so did the West. Um, so Africa, Latin America, even the Mexicans, America's backyard, so-called backyard, they're not part of it. In Latin America, they're not part of it. So is the world is not uh, on board with this. You shouldn't be, you should, people should not be uh, fooled by the illusions in the media or even the fact on how countries vote in the UN. Yes, they condemn Russian uh, invasion of Ukraine, as they rightly should. You know, many countries did. And as they, I mean, it is an invasion, yeah. Um, there's, but, but at the same time, many of those countries, you know, how they voted is not how their position. You know, some, some countries even argued that their ambassadors were threatened to vote that way because their kids are in school in the United States. But, or, or some countries, their ambassadors didn't even listen to what their foreign ministers said on those votes. And now that if you look at the recent voting, it's very different. Many things are very different now. I, I want to bring Bonnie, up another. I, we just may got a little bit of time left. I think we should begin to wrap things up and, and maybe just talk about uh, like where we're headed, uh, like you know, NATO versus uh, Russia, China. I mean, what, what, what's going to happen, say, in five yeah. years' time? That's where it is headed. The, it, it, the, they're talking more about China. They're talking about more of a global NATO. They're talking about bringing in other American allies outside of the Euro-Atlantic zone, like Japan, for example. The Japanese are talking about it themselves. So, yeah, they're making, they're connecting the dots to form, to form uh, uh, more globalized military alliance. And I mean, you're hearing more about it in 
the, uh, the uh, from the talking heads and more in the talking point. Like John Bolton, for example, is talking about that he becomes president of the United States of America. What he do? But I quickly want to mention that there was a, recently another vote at the United Nations for Palestine. You know, sending the Palestinian dossier to the International Criminal Court for investigation on occupation. The Israelis and Americans did their best to stop it, and. You can see how the votes went. Most the, most of the world supported it. Some abstained because of political reasons. Uh, and mo the most of the people against it were Israel, United States, and Australia, like these type of countries. You know? So it shows they they can't be talking about freedom in Ukraine every day. Palestinian civilians are being bombed. You know, the Israelis use that that excuse about. Hamas, Gaza, well, they've been occupying the West Bank, which for a long time was very peaceful compared to Gaza, and Hamas was not really there. Why did they continue their occupation there in their land? You know, so, and now they're, they're not even letting the Palestinian foreign minister move around freely in his own, in his own land, and the Israeli occupied West Bank, and they're sanctioned. They call it sanctions, but that's just sanitizing the language of, of coercion. You know, uh, but back to this, uh, what's happened in the world. Yeah, there's a shift. There's a shift. And, and they are targeting, they are targeting the world's largest resource supplier. One of the, like, you know, China's a large resource supplier as well, which is Russia, though. And they're charging, they're targeting the world's largest manufacturer. And if they believe in the free market of capitalism, and what I mean they is these people, leaders in the West, they should know that most of the world's going to side with those. When it comes down to it, when it comes down to the buck, they they're not going to get what they want. Of course, they're using illusions and and, and psychology, so-called psyop, psychological operations, and trying to create internal strife. What we will see is China will get the same type of treatment as Russia. They'll probably use Taiwan. As the triggering point, they say, oh, you know, they try to create some type of conflict and use it to justify sanctions against the Chinese. Of course, they want their their wishful thought is to turn India and China against one another and and basically cannon father, you know, neutralize each other. Uh, so, so this is the direction. I hope the cooler heads yeah. prevail. Well, what if they don't? I mean, I, I think it seems to me that, uh, I mean, with, with there's more. I mean, there's the uh, the, the that, that group. I can't remember what the name is, but I mean, they say it's like with less than a minute to midnight, nuclear midnight. And I'm I'm wondering if the bulletin if the, atomic the, the U.S. NATO may the bulletin of America atomic sciences. Yeah, um, you know, like is it possible that uh, that 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 could be the end that. Uh, the, that the uh, the U.S. and and NATO, in particular the United States, I mean they they're not going to lose uh, gracefully. I mean they they're, they're going to take down Russia, China any way they can, and even if it involves them. I mean, do you think that's? I don't th I don't uh, think they can. You know, even with all their sabotage, like how they sabotage the Nord. I mean, there was NATO exercises and a NATO sub located next to the explosion. Um, I don't think this is a win, or maybe in their heads it is, because they want to use hybrid warfare. Regime change in Russia is probably 
money. They're banking on many Russians turning against their own government, overthrowing it. You know, they, they're going to make life as you know. What is very disgusting is this attack on the Russian people and Russian culture. There's an all-out war against them. Even their music is being canceled. This uh, nobody's done that to Israeli music. No, nobody's done that to Israel or Saudi Arabia over Yemen. They have not done. Why don't they? Do, why don't they? They're just feigning outrage. And if if it was really sincere, they would have done that for many other wars. Why didn't say anything about Yemen or Palestine? It's ab- absolute hypocrisy. Why don't they shed the same tears for the uh, the the men, women, children of places like Palestine? You know. So. Um, these, this is this is all just grandstanding and to justify what they want to do is unfortunately use the poor Ukrainian people as cannon father against Russia and a proxy to beat it and as a reason to make it a boogeyman and spread Russophobia and it will backfire. It already has backfired. It's not, it, it, of course, let me say one thing. The moment the Russians turn into a war, everybody leaves. In Ukraine, the Ukrainians and the Russians. At the end, brother versus brother, sister versus sister. Every Russian, every single Russian family has relatives in Ukraine. Every single Ukrainian family, more or less, has family in Russia. Those countries are so intertwined uh, in many senses. Um, uh, It's really tragic. This happens. It's it's. uh, I, I don't. I won't go into. A, I won't segue into something else. But uh, it won't go. It, this will not go down the way people who are in think tanks, you know, or, or the Washington uh, uh, belt will see it. It's not. Go, and, and, and at the end of the day, we're all going to lose in one way or another. And a nuclear war definitely would, would be. Uh, you know, the it would be. Yeah devastating for life on this planet and and the signal signal towards uh, uh decivilizing you know a decivilizing signal you know to to what's happened the level of morality and ethics in the world and definitely will affect everybody in nuclear war we all lose you know and we've already lost from these wars you know we lose in the bigger picture you know, uh, I, I want to apologize to anybody who is Ukrainian, you know, who, has, who, who might be hurt from what I'm saying, but I'm telling you what I believe is the truth and what I, I, I objectively believe is the truth. And you might not be willing or, or you might not like to hear this, but I, I have no negative uh, um, uh, views about the Ukrainian people or, or the country. And um, I mean, I also apologize to anybody who's Russian who doesn't like the fact that I said it's an invasion, but simply by international law, I mean, uh, this is an invasion because even if you agree with uh, President Putin's uh, decree that the Donbass republics, the two republics, Lugansk and um, Donetsk, are independent, which he did before he, he entered, well, yeah, they did, you can technically say they didn't invade East Ukraine, part of it. But when they went into Kharkiv and, and, you know, further on towards Kiev, outskirts of Kiev, well, that's invasion. That's not territory that they declared independent. So I don't think war was the right action, but I, I definitely understand why it happened. They believed it was going to happen sooner or later. 
and, and you know, the Ukraine just going to be armed and, and it's going to be harder to fight. It's going to have higher costs for Russia. More people are going to die. Uh, the, the people that are sitting in the capitals of uh, NATO countries that make decisions really need to look at the bigger picture of what is humanity. You know, why we're, are we here on this earth? What are, what are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to just accumulate things? Are we supposed to feel on top by vanquishing other people? Is this the right path that they want for their children and grandchildren? Because I believe this is going to be a losing path for the West. I strongly believe that the end results will be very negative for the West. And everything that has been done uh, under Western dominance uh, in other parts of the world at one point is going to come back in karma form. And this will be one of the catalysts for that. You know, so I, I, I think that uh, uh, um, I, I don't think that an eye for an eye makes anything right. We'll just have a blind world. But if they continue on this path, eventually, uh, I think Western societies will pay a much heavier price, a very heavy price as an outcome of this. And I hope not. I, I'm, I'm saying this is a product of the West. I don't want people to suffer anywhere in any part of the world, you know, whether it's it's in West Asia or, or Europe or America. But, you know, humanity, one family, you know, anybody who's a parent hates it when their children fight. We are one family, one species, right? And we shouldn't be fighting each other. We should be cooperating to make things better. We can make everything better for everybody. You know, where there, no one is left behind. That's the mentality we have to have. Not one of greed, where I'm better and I have everything and my, my neighbor doesn't. You know, so anyways, I don't want to go into philosophical points, but NATO is globalizing for sure. Uh, it's falsely giving itself more... Uh, justification for existence, as you know, Finland and Sweden are joining, um, and their their entrance is very different compared to many other countries that have joined NATO. Like they are directly just entering without any steps, as has been done uh, in recent times in the post Cold of other countries in the Euro Atlantic zone. Um, so a lot of things in the world are definitely. That was a sociologist, researcher, and award-winning author, Mahdi Darius Nazamroya, speaking about a month ago on the dynamics and ultimate fate of the war in Ukraine. I just feel the need to add a couple of details to what you just heard. It's been said that the war actually began in 2014, not 2022. As discussed in Mahdi Nazamroya's article, Days After It Happened, the overthrow of Yanukovych was achieved by a coup. It's now amply documented that the then U.S. Department of State, Victoria Newland and the U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine, Jeffrey Pyatt, in a leaked phone conversation were discussing the protests in Ukraine and indicating the U.S. and EU were planning on creating a new government in Ukraine. 
In the Ukrainian parliament, or the Verkhovna Rada, the president and half of the members fled or are hid during the violence and protests in Kiev. This left opposition forces present to conduct an emergency session and, and take charge in, in a way that ignored important and specific procedures that still needed to be followed. While the lead governing party, the Party of Regions, and various pro-government parties and independent parliamentarians were in hiding, the opposition took charge. They appointed Alexander Turkinov, the new chairman, who then approved and signed into law, as if he was the acting president, the bills put forward by the opposition parties. One of those bills was to ban Viktor Yanukovych's uh, governing party, the Party of Regions, which commanded the support of nearly 40% of the seats in the Rada, which is more than the opposition parties of all Ukrainian Union Fatherland, the Ukrainian Democratic Alliance for Reform, and Svoboda combined. A significant choice of a plurality of the electorate was annulled. Today, the President Zelensky has annihilated all opposition parties and threatens people who are critical of his efforts. There is even a, a kill list for people, including global research contributor Eva Bartlett, for their independent research into the Ukraine situation. These are all thoughts we really must fixate on when we find ourselves assessing the decision to stand with Ukraine as an act of defending a democracy. If in Canada there was a trucker's convoy or something outside the parliament that prompted the governing liberals and NDP into hiding and only the conservatives were left, would we accept them passing legislation that banned the liberals and instituted the conservatives as the party in power? The war has long been a subject of frequent interviews, and I've so far had several guests speaking from a variety of points of view. I will try to end this coverage for the time being, not only to highlight other important subjects taking place regionally, but also to concentrate for the next couple of weeks on the annual event that the station from which the Global Research News Hour is produced participates in as our annual event. It's CKUW Fun Drive. The station does not benefit from state or, or corporate funds from advertising. The station has plenty of equipment in need of maintaining several computers and, and a fee to actually broadcast. Not to mention about six staff members who help shape all the broadcasts on the station from airing evenly and at a, an allotted time each week. We make part of that through the University of Winnipeg Student Association, which collects fees from each student to fund several different programs. But fully one quarter of our budget must be raised by donors. That is why we are reaching out to you, listener. Uh, as someone who listens uh, regularly or, or semi-regularly to our show, we must stress that we need to try to make over 60,000 Canadian dollars by two weeks from now. So don't delay. Put your investment in more of this sort of content. Make your donation on the line right now at 
fundrive.ckuw.ca. That's F-U-N-D-R-I-V-E dot C-K-U-W dot C-A. And donate whatever you can to the Global Research News Hour. We focus on putting out the best stories and interviews possible every week. This is your opportunity to add your own muscle behind financing CKUW, the home of spoken word programming. I should point out that there are some very interesting gifts in store as our way of thanking you for pledging what you can. At the $70 level, we have a very interesting t-shirt to to give away with a rad new design. You'll uh, really stand out, especially if you live outside of Winnipeg. And at the $95.9 level, uh, you can get a, a warm, cozy toque you know, for your head with the uh, CKUW logo on it. Bear in mind, you can also swap this for the 2019 A Night of Country Music CD and download code, uh, A Night of Live and uh, Local Country Music uh, produced by uh, Sean Burns. And at even higher levels, you also receive a hoodie, sweatshirt, an attractive mug, a Bluetooth radio, and other things. A nice heartwarming exchange if you like in return for uh, a wonderful contribution to CQW and, and the Global Research News Hour, which we and I will always appreciate. Even before becoming a member, I contributed as you can. Just as an ordinary listener to the great programs I listened to, I I remembered how amazing it was to hear the kind of programming on the station that that I wasn't hearing anywhere else. Uh, I'm thinking about uh, some of the stuff that was coming through about the the war in Iraq, you know, which uh, I couldn't get anywhere else. Eventually, after appearing as a guest on CQW, I was offered the opportunity to become a volunteer And I was a bit reluctant at first, I must admit that, but I got on board. I started producing original programming, like what I listened to, and believe it or not, I'm still at it. Um, This station and the uh, opportunity to produce a show like the Global Research News Hour really is a dream come true for me. I have to close now, but join us next week for more interviews and more discussion during the Fun Drive 2023 episode. Listening to the Global Research News Hour, a program funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Oji Cree, Dene, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Metis Nation and the heart of the Metis Nation homeland. The show is aired on other radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I've been the show's host and producer, Michael Welch. Thank you once again for joining us. Global Research News Hour.